This is Guns and Butter. that was uh, owed by subprime borrowers, all the bad mortgages, that's less than a single billion dollars. So they need someone to misrepresent the situation uh, as a cover, an umbrella story uh, for the big giveaway. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, the new junk economics from democracy to neoliberal oligarchy. Michael Hudson is a financial economist and historian. He is president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trend, a Wall Street financial analyst and distinguished research professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. His 1972 book, Super Imperialism, The Economic Strategy of American Empire, is a critique of how the United States exploited foreign economies through the IMF and World Bank. He is also author of Trade, Development, and Foreign Debt. Dr. Hudson has written many articles on the current global financial crisis. A few of his most recent articles that we discuss today are Mr. Obama's Junk Economics, Democrats Relinquish the Populist Option to the Republicans, The Bernanke Reappointment, Be Afraid, Be Very Afraid, and his speech to the Labor Party in Australia, The Counter-Enlightenment, Its Economic Program, and The Classical Alternative. Dr. Hudson, welcome. Thank you very much, Bonnie. You write that the independence of the Federal Reserve is a euphemism for financial oligarchy. What do you mean by that? The central banks use the Federal Reserve as their lobbying institution within the government, uh, and the Federal Reserve creates the free credit to give to the banks, uh, and the banks uh, use this credit to bid up uh, asset prices. And in the United States, 1% of the population owns about uh, two-thirds of the revenue from wealth, that is interest, dividends, uh, rents, and capital gains. So the function of the financial system is to increase uh, the price of houses, real estate, uh, buying a retirement income relative to wages. And in that sense, it's uh, the fire sector, the finance, insurance, and real estate sector relative to the uh, rest of the economy, labor and industrial capital. Now, just to clarify for people who don't understand the Fed, that is a private organization, isn't it? It's uh, technically a commercial bank has to join uh, the Federal Reserve by buying stock in it, but it's really run uh, by the government. On the other hand, uh, Wall Street has veto power over whoever the government appoints to the Fed or to the Treasury. So, in effect, Wall Street tells the government uh, who to employ to give away government resources back to the private sector. Most wealth throughout history has always been taken from the private sector, uh, either militarily by invading a country and taking over the land and the commons. Uh, But today it's done uh, financially by uh, taking over a government, basically, and privatizing uh, the government's resources, or in the case of the Fed, uh, letting uh, the banks create free credit uh, to buy uh, out uh, resources that are being privatized, uh, largely in other countries, uh, their phone systems, communication systems, telephone systems, water, mineral rights, oil, gas, uh, everything. How does the Fed create credit? 
It's simply uh, uh, the same way a bank does. Uh, a bank will go to the Fed and say, we need uh, to borrow a uh, billion dollars at one quarter of one percent. And so the Fed will uh, just write a deposit. The bank will sign an IOU uh, to the Fed all electronically uh, for a billion dollars, and the Fed will credit a deposit. That's just what a commercial bank does if somebody goes in. It's credits that create deposits, not the other way around like it used to be. Most people think that what banks lend out are the money that depositors put in, uh, but many banks start out without any money at all and without any deposits, and uh, they will make a loan to somebody and just uh, create a deposit and say, okay, you give us the IOU, we'll have that on our assets, uh, and we will uh, create a bank uh, uh, deposit for you in a similar amount. Uh, you'll pay us interest, and if you spend the money elsewhere and we don't get the money back, we'll just go to the Federal Reserve and borrow from them at a quarter percent, and we'll lend to you at uh, 5% or 10%, or if you're a credit card customer, 30%. So the banks borrow from the Fed at one quarter of a percent, and lend it to the uh, uh, credit card users at 30%, and that's how they make the money to pay themselves bonuses and uh, uh, buy the big bank buildings that they build. So deposits are actually created by loans. That's correct. See, that's something I think that is uh, mystified a lot of people. <laughs> that's right. Uh, it's not taught very much even in the universities, uh, except at the University of Missouri at Kansas City, uh, where I'm associated with. Uh, but that that's the key. And uh, John Kenneth Galbraith wrote that the... Uh, essence of how banks work is so counterintuitive. It's so much against what the average person uh, thinks of as being fair uh, and normal that uh, there's just cognitive dissonance. People don't want to understand it. And uh, that's what the banks uh, depend upon. They need somebody like Bernanke or even better uh, Obama to misrepresent the situation and make it appear as if the government has to bail out the banks as if the banks are uh, necessary uh, for the economy to work, as if speculation and derivatives gambling, as if you had to uh, give the banks uh, $13 trillion in the last year, uh, or uh, the economy would have collapsed. When in fact, uh, if you add up, uh, according to the uh, recent government release last week, if you had all the money that was uh, owed by subprime borrowers, all the bad mortgages, that's less than a single billion dollars. So they need someone to misrepresent the situation uh, as a cover, an umbrella story uh, for the big giveaway. Now, is that why uh, you have written that money is debt? Yes, all money is debt. The money in your uh, when you write uh, uh, a check to somebody, you're writing against your debt. Uh, when the government issues money, that's technically a debt on the government's uh, balance sheet, a liability uh, that it gets in exchange for an asset. Uh, that's basic account uh, keeping. And so, uh, the money you have in the pocket, uh, the money in your savings accounts, uh, or your checking accounts, uh, all have their counterpart in bank loans to somebody. Else. So uh, in America, for instance, 90% of the savings are owned by the richest 10% of the population, and they're lent out to the bottom uh, bottom 90% is debt. So uh, the savings of the financially wealthy classes are lent out to the debtor classes, and uh, they uh, charge interest for this. And this is why people's living standards have not risen since 1979. Uh, wage levels haven't risen because the economic surplus, despite all of the increase in productivity, has been uh, used 
to pay interest and financial charges on uh, this uh, increasing uh, credit that's been issued. And uh, one party's credit is another party's debt, as I said. Now, supposedly, all of the money in circulation actually is supposed to represent some sort of collateral, isn't it? Uh, not in the case of government. What backs a government uh, money uh, isn't actually a hard collateral. It's the government's ability to uh, tax. And in fact, people need money in order to pay their taxes. This has been the case for the last uh, 5,000 years, going back to Sumer, Babylonia. If the government would levy taxes in uh, silver or grain, then people needed silver, or they needed to sell the grain to silver to pay the taxes in. Uh, similarly, uh, governments issue paper currency, uh, and they make sure that there's a use for the paper currency by levying taxes. So if the government didn't tax back this money, then there'd be very little need for people to have a paper currency, and they'd uh, handle their finances in a different way, which is why uh, governments traditionally have uh, have taxed us so much, but they're reducing that now. And as they reduce taxes in the United States, there's much less uh, use uh, for the dollar, and the dollar tends to decline. If the government were to abolish taxes, then there would be no need for individuals to uh, obtain dollars to pay the taxes, and there wouldn't be a market for the dollars, and the dollars would decline. Right. So what gives the dollars their worth uh, to the government is its ability to tax the citizenry in dollars. Yes. Uh, this is what was called the state theory of money, uh, developed by Georg Friedrich Knopp uh, back uh, early in the 20th century. But then what's the difference between that and the bank's creation of of money? Uh, very little. The bank's creation of money uh, often has uh, nothing in back of it at all, and that's certainly the case uh, with the uh, Federal Reserve. So uh, the banks are able simply to get money uh, from the Federal Reserve, and uh, the idea is that they can repay the dollars in money that's accepted by the government because the Federal Reserve will give the banks enough money uh, to pay the government and remain solvent. So it's as if the whole economy today is being run to keep the banks solvent, not to produce more goods and services, not to raise living standards, but all for the uh, aim of uh, increasing bank profits. Exactly. Now, the Fed is not really the government. Isn't it private bankers? No. Uh, officially, the Fed stock is owned by uh private bankers, but private bankers need the government in order to provide uh, official public credit. For instance, when the Fed uh, did uh, $2 trillion of cash for trash swaps last year, it let uh, the banks give them uh, junk mortgages that had nothing in back of them, and it uh, asked the Treasury to print $2 trillion worth of Treasury bonds uh, to give these banks as uh, uh, real security so the banks wouldn't be in uh, negative equity and be bankrupt. Uh, the Fed needs the government in order to give it uh, official money. Well, now, who prints the money, the Fed or the government? The government. But the government will turn it over to the Fed. Uh, and so the Treasury and the Federal Reserve work together. Uh, basically, there's no need for an independent Federal Reserve at all. It basically could be part of the Treasury. And even uh, Milton Friedman on the right wing of the political spectrum recommended that the Federal Reserve simply be a desk uh, inside of the Treasury, as basically it was before uh, 1914. Well, exactly. That's what I thought. Uh, the government technically will 
uh, issue bonds that pay interest, but it doesn't. Uh, essentially, the government lends the banks the money uh, to relend it. So the government lends banks money at a quarter of a percent, and the banks can turn around and buy government bonds, which now are only yielding about one percent. So that doesn't pay very much, but they can lend this money to other countries uh, that pay much higher rates of interest. Uh, so that's basically what's happening now. But uh, usually, it's always been the government that lends banks the money to lend it at a uh, markup, and the markup is how banks make their money. I see. So, say the government uh, lends money at a quarter percent interest to the to the to the Fed or to the banks. No, it, it gives money freely to the Fed, uh, and the Fed gives it to the banks at a quarter percent. I see. And then the banks raise the interest rate when they make loans to others. Right. I see. Ben Bernanke has been reappointed as chairman of the Federal Reserve. He is touted as the best choice to head the Fed because he's an expert on the causes of the Great Depression. What conclusions did Bernanke draw from his study of the Great Depression, and do you agree with his conclusions? Well, uh, no professor I know believes that he's an expert at all. He's what you call a useful idiot. He misinterprets the uh, Depression in the way that neoclassical and monetarist economists normally reinterpret it. Uh, He has a banking eye view of the Depression. From his point of view, the problem with the Depression was the banks didn't have enough money to lend out. Uh, And of course, the banks uh, could have lent as much as they wanted to. There was nothing to lend to. But he said the only problem is uh, banks didn't lend money to get the economy going because uh, prices for real estate and bonds were so low. And he said if only prices for real estate would have been higher, if only all these people out of work would have had to pay five times as much for their housing as they did, if only wages would have been much lower than they actually were, and if only well, a, a few million people would have just died quicker, and if people would have been paid cheaper, we would have got out of the Depression quicker. Now, that's garbage. That's crazy. And uh, every professor I know thinks he is a disaster for the Fed. And uh, that is what has led the labor unions and most Democrats to have utter contempt for President Obama. Uh, No Republican could have got by with appointing such a right-wing extremist as Mr. Bernanke to the Fed. It takes uh, someone with a friendly face and a Democrat to pursue a right-wing policy uh, that the Republicans could not have gotten away with. And uh, that essentially is what Obama and uh, uh, Bernanke is doing. The Obama plan is to lower wages in the United States by at least 25% in the next five years and to put the class war back in business. Uh, That's the people he is putting in office are uh, to do that. And uh, that is uh, Bernanke's idea, that the way to uh, solve the problem today, as in the 30s, is not to uh, reduce the debts, not to roll the debts down to the ability to pay, but to inflate uh, prices for real estate, to inflate stock and bond prices, to create a boom so that it'll be even harder for Americans to buy houses, uh, even harder for them to buy a retirement income, because uh, if you uh, put your savings in a mutual fund these days or a uh, pension fund, you're only getting about 1% on government debt, and that's pretty much the risk-free rate. And uh, uh, the result is that uh, the 
pension savings and the retirement savings of Americans and also Europeans are basically going to be wiped out. Uh, the Obama plan is to get rid of Social Security, get rid of medical care, or downsize them so much that uh, people are not going to be able to get uh, the money that they'd expected to get in retirement. Uh, and this is to uh, use the savings to pay uh, the banks and essentially the wealthiest 10% of the population at the expense of the uh, lower uh, 95%. And it'll be done with a smile. You'll say, gee, I'm really sorry uh, you're all getting poor. I'm sorry you can't afford insurance. I'm sorry the uh, lifespans are shortening. But he's really not sorry at all. I'm speaking with financial economist and historian Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, The New Junk Economics, From Democracy to Neoliberal Oligarchy. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You have written that for Mr. Bernanke, more debt is not the problem, it is the solution. This is what makes his reappointment so dangerous. That's correct. The idea is essentially to uh, help the banks. That's what uh, Mr. Bernanke thinks the aim of the Federal Reserve is. He's going directly against the Federal Reserve Charter, uh, whose first uh, line says it's supposed to support employment and living standards. Mr. Bernanke says we need to lower employment. We have to lower living standards. So he's going exactly the opposite uh, of what the Fed's supposed to do. He said we have to uh, help the banks get out of the fact that they've made all these bad loans by inflating uh, the economy again so that the assets they have, all this real estate they have on their balance sheet, uh, will get above water. Uh, He's actually trying to convince Americans in negative equity, where the mortgage is um, higher than the uh, housing price, uh, to pay their mortgages instead of walking away from the the bad debts. Uh, I think that uh, the solution should be that Americans should simply stop paying the mortgages uh, in these houses, walk away, let the banks foreclose, and buy back the house or a similar house at half the price uh, and leave the banks uh, with the bad loans on their balance sheet, just like a commercial operator would do. Uh, But uh, Bernanke is trying to just get the banks lending money again to make so much uh, mortgage money available that somehow the prices will go up and save the banks. You talk about two economies and that today the two economies are finance versus debtors. That's basically it. Uh, People think of the economy as being industry, production, and consumption, uh, and that's economy number one. But that's not the economy that the Federal Reserve and the government is aiming at. They aim at the economy of assets and debts. They aim at the financial, insurance, and real estate sector, the fire sector. Uh, And their objective is to increase the price of wealth of assets relative to the price of labor. And uh, the first economy, the production and the wage uh, sector and uh, the industrial capital sector, are being depleted in order to provide more revenue for the fire sector. You emphasize that it's a myth that money works, that humans work. Wealth grows in society because of the efforts of the rest of society. That's right. People say uh, uh, money managers will advertise by saying, let your money work for you. Uh, And the idea is that somehow the money is magically uh, increasing uh, by compound interest. But money doesn't really do anything itself. Somebody has to. uh, Money is really debt. And this money that people give is invested in IOUs or uh, uh, loans or some kind of financial 
financial claim on wealth, not on creating tangible wealth. So this money that people get from investing uh, in mutual funds or pension funds has to take the form of profits or rent or uh, capital gains, uh, but it doesn't actually produce anything. Now, you spoke a moment ago about uh, Ben Bernanke's analysis of what caused the Great Depression. What would your analysis be of what caused the Great Depression in the 30s? Well, it was obviously the debt problem. Uh, To begin with, intergovernmental debt. What triggered it all was uh, America, after World War I, insisted that its allies pay us for the arms that it had sold them before it joined the war. So England and France owed a huge war debt for the United States. They didn't have the money to pay, so they turned to Germany uh, and said that Germany had to pay reparations. Well, Germany, meanwhile, had lost uh, all of its uh, coal fields, its steel fields, uh, its assets were stripped. So uh, it had to get the money uh, to pay the Allies by borrowing from the United States. So until 1929, American investors would buy German municipal bonds and uh, buy uh, German stocks. Uh, The German Central Bank would take these dollars that it got for the bonds and would pay England and France reparations. England and France would pay the arms debts to the United States government uh, that would then uh, relend the money to Wall Street to buy more German bonds. So this is a kind of circular flow. The problem is that all this required low interest rates in the United States so that people would borrow at a low interest here and buy the higher yielding uh, German bonds. And in order to keep the interest rates low, just like Mr. Bernanke is doing now, uh, the Federal Reserve supplied so much credit that it created a stock market boom that burst in 1929. That's what Mr. Bernanke is trying to do again. His solution to the Depression is to uh, try to emulate the 1920s and create a stock market boom by just uh, creating a lot of uh, free credit or the bubble economy all over again, uh, like he did when he was at the Federal Reserve. And uh, the problem was that finally... uh, Germany couldn't pay. Uh, Europe couldn't pay. In 1931, the inter-allied debts and reparations stopped. Uh, but by that time, uh, the American economy and other economies had run so deeply into debt that people had to use uh, the income they had uh, to pay their mortgages, to pay their uh, personal loans. Companies had to pay loans, and they didn't have any money to uh, buy goods and services if they were individuals. Or if they were companies, they had no money to invest in uh, more factories and plant, and they wouldn't invest anyway because the individuals uh, were all defaulting on their debt. So the economy shrank from debt deflation. Well, Mr. Bernanke wrote an article saying that nobody believes in debt deflation. That's wrong. You can ignore debt, ignore credit. All that matters is making uh, prices of stocks and bonds and real estate high enough so the banks can make money. That's all he cares about. That's what he wrote. It's as if he were the marketing department of a commercial bank, not interested in the economy as a whole, or what I just said was economy number one not increasing production, not increasing wages, but just increasing bank profits. That's uh, his concern, and it's what the Federal Reserve does. And that's why the last thing you want in the Federal Reserve is uh, someone who is nominated by the banks uh, who believes that uh, the way to make the economy grow is to make the banks grow, because all he really makes grow is debt, and debt is the opposite of growth. What is the dollar carry trade, and what are the dangers inherent in this carry trade? 
the carry trade is when you borrow cheaply in one currency at a low interest rate and uh, convert this money into another currency to lend out at higher rates. Uh, it began in Japan uh, in 1990. After Japan's real estate bubble burst, the government, uh, the Bank of Japan, tried to let the banks earn their way out of debt. So they did just what Bernanke is doing today. Uh, the Bank of Japan enabled uh, banks to borrow at about 1%. So the banks would, uh, in Japan would borrow at maybe half a percent, 1%. They'd lend it out uh, 3 or 4% to uh, foreign hedge funds and uh, speculators. Uh, arbitrageurs, they're called. So the speculators would borrow Japanese yen, would convert them into, say, euros and lend to uh, Greece or lend to Iceland at 15%. So you could borrow cheaply in Japan, uh, borrow and then lend to uh, other countries, especially post-Soviet economies at uh, 10 to 15%, and you could pocket the difference. Uh, similarly today, Americans, uh, for the last few years, hedge funds and uh, Wall Street has been borrowing from the banks at 1%, lending in euros at uh, 5 or 6%, and pocketing the difference. And it's been not only the interest difference they get, but they've also got the appreciation. All this converting money out of dollars into euros has pushed up the price of the euro against the dollar to about uh, $1.60 uh, as opposed to uh, what it was uh, at the beginning of the euro, uh, 80 cents uh, per dollar. So uh, now that the European banks are uh, going broke, now that the governments are in enforcing a depression on their countries, now that the uh, post-Soviet loans are going bad, all these speculators are repaying the American banks. They're selling their euro loans. They're, they're saying, okay, let's get out of the euro bonds. They're dumping the euro bonds, and they're uh, moving out of euros back into the dollar. Well, that's pushed the euro down to just about a dollar thirty-five right now. It's pushed the dollar's value way up because all this money pushing the dollar up is uh, being used to repay all of the debt. So you're having a winding down of this huge superstructure of debt uh, that was all built up, largely to finance the real estate bubble over the last decade. And the repayment is pushing the dollar up and uh, holding down interest rates here, uh, enabling the U.S. to continue you to uh, try to inflate the stock market. So has the low interest on the dollar helped the stock market? Uh, it has because companies can borrow at a low interest rate uh, and buy other companies. The corporate raiders can borrow uh, to buy. And hedge funds and speculators can borrow cheaply and buy uh, stocks that are paying higher rate and dividends and pocket the difference. So low interest rates here basically inflate the price of assets. Uh, you can uh, assume that any asset is worth the uh, revenue it yields, uh, the dividend or the rent or the profit divided by the interest rate. And the lower the interest rate, uh, the higher the capitalization rates, the more that can be borrowed against it. And uh, a house is worth what a bank will lend. And a stock or a company is worth what a bank will lend a corporate raider to take it over. And so low interest rates here spur uh, a boom in real estate and stock market prices. Now, can these low interest rates here in the United States go on forever? Uh, no, only if foreign uh, countries continue to uh, recycle the balance of payments deficits here. Uh, but they now don't want to do that anymore because they don't see how uh, the dollar can repay uh, the money that it is already owed to foreign central banks. Uh, the U.S. government owes $4 trillion to foreign central banks 
uh, two trillion to China, one trillion to Japan, and a trillion to others. And uh, yet the uh, economy is running a chronic trade deficit because we've deindustrialized. Uh, it's running uh, a rising military deficit as Mr. Obama uh, steps up the military spending uh, everywhere. Uh, he's now building up uh, the military bases in South America for a war in South America, and that's uh, driving South America into uh, a block with Asia in response. And American money managers are taking the dollars they're getting and they're putting it into so-called emerging markets, namely anywhere uh, other than the dollar. Now, does that then mean that at some point the interest rates are going to have to rise here? At some point they will, and as interest rates rise, uh, stocks and bonds and real estate prices go back down. And the intention is that uh, that's what essentially is going to wipe out most of the pension funds uh, and the mutual funds and uh, wipe out people's savings. Uh, If there's only so much wealth to go around, uh, the banks have to wipe out uh, the savings of most people in order for them to uh, get what's left over, and that basically is the Obama economic plan. Now, is this something similar that happened in the Depression in the 30s? Yes, that's how, that's how it works. I'm speaking with financial economist and historian Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, The New Junk Economics, From Democracy to Neoliberal Oligarchy. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, you have written that, uh, and I'm taking this a little out of context, uh, Marxism pushed classical political economy to its logical conclusion in the late 19th century. What was political economy's logical conclusion? The whole, uh, from the physiocrats through Adam Smith to John Stuart Mill, uh, classical economics was a reform program, and the idea was to bring prices in the marketplace down to the actual cost of production. That meant getting rid of unnecessary income, especially to the landlords, to the landed aristocracy for its rent, uh, and uh, uh, finance. The idea was that the government uh, would not tax labor, would not tax industry, but would tax uh, agriculture and uh, uh, rural land, would, would tax basically the land value that nature created, the mineral value, uh, the free lunch, and uh, the physiocrat called that the single tax uh, because they wanted to get rid of the French aristocracy that just lived off uh, its uh, land rent and government bonds. Adam Smith said uh, England, if it's going to compete with foreign countries, has to keep down the rents that the landlords get. David Ricardo developed the concept of economic rent uh, to say we've got to get rid of the protective tariffs that protect agriculture so that uh, you're not going to get a free ride for the uh, landed aristocracy, the heirs of the uh, uh, Norman invaders who conquered England in 1066. Uh, John Stuart Mill uh, became one of the uh, philosophic radicals, or Ricardian uh, radicals, and uh, uh, wanted to basically uh, either nationalize or tax the land. Uh, And Marx extended this idea to the financial sector in the third volume of Capital, and also uh, 
elaborated the theory of rent in the second volume, uh, and that became the socialist idea uh, to essentially tax land and uh, to have the government uh, provide the credit for banking instead of private bankers so that uh, you'd get rid of the fire sector uh, and that that would be how the government would make its money. Uh, the idea also was that the government should supply the basic infrastructure, transportation, roads, and should recapture the value of all of this uh, spending, uh, the land value that it created by uh, uh, the land tax. So the whole idea was activist, uh, not only on the left wing of the spectrum by uh, John Stuart Mill, but on the right wing. In the United States, uh, the business uh, industry wanted government protective tariffs. They wanted the government to build infrastructure to uh, take uh, the external costs of production, the transportation and the others over. Uh, and what Marx said was uh, that a lot of the economic surplus was exploited uh, from the productive class. And he gave it a political coloration uh, that was pretty much what uh, Adam Smith and Mel and the others had said, but the way in which he put it, focusing on uh, wealth that was a uh, free lunch uh, was so upsetting to uh, the vested interests that they said we've we've got to get an alternative to classical economics, and that alternative was to say that there's no such thing as unearned income. Uh, they said everybody earns their income, and the rich people earn their income by uh, providing a service. The landlord provides the service of providing the land that nature provided. Uh, bankers provide the service of lending the money that the government provides. And uh, they developed a whole kind of junk economics uh, that has sort of taken over to replace classical economics, leaving the universities uh, who taught uh, classical economy, basically only those that teach Marxism, because Marxism is the only form of the classical economics of Adam Smith and Ricardo and Mel that uh, has survived uh, in the curriculum now that you've had the uh, anti-classical economists, the sort of apologists for uh, high finance taking over. Uh, you write that today matters are muddled by the fact that the anti-classical economics that emerged late in the 19th century calls itself neoclassical. Yes, they don't. You have the right wingers, uh, especially the Republicans, saying, "Well, we're for free markets, just like Adam Smith." Uh, but Adam Smith's idea of free market was a market free of rent and free of interest. Uh, he opposed foreign wars. He said, look, foreign wars lead to uh, government debt. And if you have a government debt, then the government has to pay interest on it. And it pays the interest by levying taxes. So if you want a low-cost economy, you need uh, an economy with low taxes, and that means a government that doesn't get into war. And so he and his contemporaries, like Richard Price and others, opposed uh, the British war in America. They said, give the American colonies their independence. Don't keep going to war with France over colonies, uh, stay out of war. And uh, by the end of uh, the Napoleonic Wars, England was paying about three-quarters of its entire budget on uh, interest uh, payments. That's what the Philippines are paying today. Uh, and uh, so Adam Smith was anti-war. He was against the landlord sector. He said the natural tax base is the landed aristocracy because they don't do anything for the rent. They don't provide the land. Nature provided the land. Uh, they can get money on buildings, but not on the land. So he wanted to tax the landlords, uh, and also in terms of banking. Uh, he was against uh, the bankers making money on the uh, 
national debt. So uh, the right-wingers today, when they quote uh, Smith, never have you actually read him. The last thing they'll do is teach uh, what he wrote. And in fact, the history of economic thought has been dropped from the academic curriculum where it used to be a core course when I was uh, getting my PhD in the 1960s. Yes, you go on to say that neoclassical economics should rightly be called anti-classical because it avoids dealing with wealth, debt, and social structures. That's exactly the point. They called it neoclassical so nobody would see that they've taken the words of the uh, classical economists in the 19th century and they've used a kind of Orwellian double think. So a free market today is a market free of government regulation for predatory lenders and for landlords to get a free lunch not an economy that's free of uh, predatory credit and free of a free lunch. So it's an Orwellian exercise. Well, what do you think of the term neoliberal? Uh, The neoliberal is the opposite of the old liberal. Uh, It's another form of uh, doublethink. The liberals in uh, the 19th century were the people who wanted to tax land to get to free the market from rent and interest. The only way that you could do this in the 19th century was creating a democratic government strong enough to check the vested interest, to to control uh, real estate and finance, uh, to subordinate it to the public wealth. Today, a neoliberal wants to get rid of government to give a free reign to Wall Street. And neoliberals claim to be against centralized planning, but they're for centralized planning. They just want to shift centralized planning out of the hand of elected officials into the hands of Wall Street. And that's why Mr. Bernanke says that the hallmark of democracy is an independent Federal Reserve and an independent central bank. But that's actually the hallmark of oligarchy. If finance is the economy's planning center, then you want that controlled by the government and by elected officials. You don't want it controlled by Wall Street. That's the opposite of democracy. Well, it's this mystification of the language that has everyone so confused and makes economics so difficult for people to comprehend. That's the purpose. If you're going to use an economic system that's exploitative, you want to tell people that they're getting rich by going into debt. You want them to think of, look at how much your house is going up in value, not how much do you have to borrow in order to buy a house to set up a family. Uh, They say, look at how much you're getting in your pension funds without saying uh, the higher stock and bond prices get, the lower the yield you get, and the more we're going to have to end up defaulting on your pensions and not paying you. Uh, So the whole idea is to make economics mystification. Now, you quit teaching economics in 1972. Why was that? I couldn't fit the real world into the uh, curriculum. I wanted to talk about, uh, to teach uh, debt and finance. And indeed, I was teaching that at the New School, at the graduate uh, faculty of the New School for Social Research in New York. Uh, But my courses weren't the uh, key curriculum courses. People uh, were being sort of brainwashed. In order to get accredited uh, as an economics department, the uh, Uh, School was told you have to begin teaching macroeconomics and price theory and essentially Chicago school stuff. So uh, Mr. Halbrenner, who ran the department, decided he wanted to uh, get accredited rather than uh, teach how the world actually worked. So uh, I went to work for a think tank and uh, left academia until I joined uh, the University of Missouri at Kansas City about five years ago. Now, you've said that the Chicago School of Economics was basically a trivialization of, of economic theory. 
Yes, it essentially uh, calls itself monetarism. It ignores debt. Uh, that's really the belief of Bernanke. They look at money supply, if you increase the money supply, as uh, increasing consumer prices. Uh, but this isn't what money's spent for. Uh, 99.9% of money uh, that passes uh, through the uh, clearinghouses uh, every day uh, are for bank loans and mortgages and stocks and bonds, uh, not for GNP. Uh, the entire year's GDP is traded every single day on the stock exchange here in New York. So very uh, very little money is actually spent on the real economy. It's almost all uh, used to uh, affect uh, the prices of real estate, stocks, and bonds. And you don't have these prices of uh, wealth appear in the Chicago analysis. You don't have the mail distribution uh, and increasing concentration of wealth uh, taught at Chicago. Uh, you have them only looking at uh, uh, supply and demand demand of goods and services without asking who's getting rich off it how do you how do you actually get a fortune well uh, you had novelists in the 19th century uh, like Balzac saying that behind every uh, great uh, family fortune there's a great theft or an undiscovered theft and uh, uh, that's what Marx said he he pointed to classical accumulation or primitive accumulation by military conquest, by insider political dealing. Uh, the Chicago School treats uh, everybody's wealth as if people actually earned it rather than getting it from insider corruption or from theft. Uh, and uh, crime basically pays better than any other industry, and that should be uh, one of the starting points of economics. And uh, they have a view of the world that's sort of a, uh, uh, a third grader's point of the world of uh, how bunny rabbits uh, make things and trade without uh, any idea of uh, cheating people or getting a free lunch or getting uh, income without producing anything at all, but just paying oneself a bonus uh, and getting a government bailout for it. That doesn't appear. I'm speaking with financial economist and historian Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, The New Junk Economics, From Democracy to Neoliberal Oligarchy. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Could you talk a little bit about the labor theory of value? Uh, the objective from the 13th century of economic theory was to say how much of price uh, that people pay is actually necessary. Uh, in other words, what's a fair price for bankers to charge and for companies to charge? And they said, well, you have, uh, first of all, the cost of labor. And then you have the price of uh, the machinery and the uh, raw materials you use. And all of these prices of machinery, raw materials, ultimately they're all resolvable into labor costs. So the, uh, the classical economists had two uh, basic uh, tools. The labor theory of value is the theory of the intrinsic cost of producing goods and services. Uh, but then price theory was the excess of price over and above this value. And uh, that price was economic rent or the free lunch, and that was interest, uh, government taxes, and uh, uh, rent. And uh, so essentially you would subtract uh, the value from price and you'd get 
uh, what was exploitative or a free lunch. Well, that was the economic theory that underlay the uh, Sherman antitrust law in this country in 1890. It underlay uh, utility regulations. Uh, it underlaid all of the government regulations of what uh, phone companies, electric and gas companies could charge. They said, look, you can cover your cost in terms of what it actually costs you, uh, but you can't get a free lunch except uh, some interest uh, that you pay, and, and uh, somehow you're entitled to a fair rate of profit. So the labor theory of value is part of isolating that portion of the price that people pay and the income people got that was not earned. Right. You write that economic rent and capital gains are income without a corresponding necessary cost of production. Right. So they're not really value. They're empty pricing. They're prices and income without intrinsic value. You go on to say that banks have lent increasingly to buy up these rentier rights to extract interest and less and less to promote industrial capital formation. That's the problem with banking today, is the bankers have said, well, we have to carve up the public domain uh, because the public doesn't borrow from the banks. Uh, Governments uh, finance all this capital uh, in every economy, and the biggest capital expenditure in any economy is the public expenses, uh, the public infrastructure roads and uh, the uh, mineral rights, uh, what in most countries were the public sector. And the bank said, look, we want to make interest on all of this, and the way we can make interest is to get this out of the public domain into private hands, and then we will lend the money for people to buy, uh, say, the roads, and then put toll booths up on them. So the uh, banking system has its interest in uh, turning the economy into a toll booth economy rather than a production economy. Uh, So you have banks actually financing uh, the loading down of the economy with empty prices, with uh, prices people have to pay simply for access to roads. Uh, In Chicago, for instance, uh, to avoid taxing real estate, the city has uh, given the rights of putting parking meters all along the curbs uh, to charge, and uh, this now makes it uh, people have to pay a lot more to park their cars for what used to be uh, free parking along the curbs. The whole economy is being treated like that, and they're, they're charging for water, they're charging for uh, they charge for air if they could do it. They're certainly charging for land. They're charging for what used to be produced freely by nature, and therefore was kept in the public domain, or for natural monopolies like the phone system or the cable. And uh, uh, the banks are lending to whoever is going to buy these uh, toll booth rights and just increase the uh, charges that they're levying on uh, the users. That's why living standards have not gone up here. You say that it is a form of overhead, not a means of production. Won't this type of economy come to a screeching halt at some point due to a lack of production? That's right. Somebody has to produce. And uh, what America calls the post-industrial society is really just a rentier economy. It's a financialized economy where all of the surplus is uh, shifted into Wall Street and the financial sector. Uh, It's not being invested in new factories and in tangible capital formation, plant, uh, research and development, education. Uh, It's all being used essentially just to pay financial speculation. So then is this why you have alluded to uh, the possibility that we could be sinking back into a, a new feudalism? That seems to be the objective, to uh, channel all of the income over and above basic subsistence needs to uh, an emerging oligarchy that will make itself hereditary and become an aristocracy.
Right, and you've also mentioned on the show before that it looks like uh, uh, people are going to be going back into a land-based subsistence economy. Uh, well, Europe is very well set up for this because uh, most European families, especially in the former Soviet Union, have their own dachas, their own gardens in the country where they grow their own food. Uh, very few Americans have uh, their own gardens, and so they're dependent on uh, the market uh, for buying all of this. So uh, the Europeans are set up for a market breakdown, uh, especially in countries that didn't have a good market economy to begin with. Uh, the Americans are more dependent on market workings than anyone else, and so uh, they're probably going to be uh, squeezed the most. What do you think about the talk of deficit reduction? How dangerous are government deficits, and are there two different types of deficits? Uh, government deficits are not dangerous at all. That's crazy to read. The whole basis of Keynesian economics is when you have an economic downturn, when the market's shrinking, then uh, you need more spending. Now, Keynes uh, said uh, the government should fill the gap. When there's more unemployment, uh, you've got to have enough spending so that uh, there's a market for people to hire labor again. Uh, Instead, uh, the government is uh, shrinking the market by shrinking the deficit and cutting back government spending, except foreign military spending and spending on the banks. Uh, So what this means is that the markets are going to continue to shrink. And Mr. Bernanke said, aha, the market is shrinking by the government, but this is wonderful because uh, when the market demand shrinks, now people are going to have to borrow from the banks to uh, break even and sustain their living standards. All these people who are unemployed are going to have to somehow uh, take out loans or sell off what they have, and uh, that's our business, uh, building up more bank loans. Well, of course, that's what Clinton did when Clinton uh, uh, ran a budget uh, surplus. that stopped the government spending, and people borrowed more and more from the banks. And Clinton was the biggest friend the banks had had since the Depression. And uh, Bernanke wants to uh, uh, redo that sort of democratic policy by uh, increasing people's debt. And he thinks that if the government doesn't spend, then people are going to borrow more from the banks and give them more business. And in fact, the banks aren't lending, because uh, who's going to lend to people whose uh, real estate already is in negative equity, so they can't uh, raise the mortgage anymore. They're not going to lend to people uh, without a job. So the whole idea is self-destructive. Yes, but then the deficits that they are accruing are going into, as you've mentioned, to loans to banks and military spending. So is that kind of deficit spending really dangerous? Uh, It's uh, dangerous for countries on the receiving end of uh, the bombs and the uh, predator uh, drones that uh, uh, the Americans are doing. It's dangerous for other countries. And it's empty debt here. It's debt that uh, the government is now going to turn around and tax labor and industry to repay. And uh, the taxes are going to increase the cost of living and doing business here, which will price American labor even more out of the market and make it even harder to export. So the dollar at some point is going to go way, way down and all of a sudden the Americans are going to find that uh, the prices they have to pay for imports or for American goods that are competing with imports are going to go way up and uh, their income is not and they're going to be squeezed uh, like they've never been squeezed before. They don't seem to have a clue of what's coming. Right, so that's very scary. It sounds like only the wealthy are going to be able to get by. That seems to be the idea. Wow, that's very dangerous. Very scary. Not wealthy. 
Well, well, no. If you're wealthy, that's the ideal. That, that's recovery. And the wealthy say, we have to get rich uh, because you wouldn't have a job without the rich people. Uh, you owe your jobs to the fact that uh, we rich people are spending the money and investing. You need us. That's the myth, uh, that the host needs the parasite, uh, whereas it really doesn't need it at all. Exactly. But that could lead, could lead to a big social instability. Uh, it could. Uh, I'm not sure where it would come from. I mean, all people can do right now is say, well, we're certainly not going to vote for the Democrats because they're not helping things. Uh, and they're voting for the Republicans. <laughs> Who would have ever guessed? Uh, simply because the Republicans are not doing anything at all. And uh, they'll clean up. But of course, once they're in office, they'll do exactly the same thing. And as long as you can get uh, people bouncing from one party to another that has basically the same program, uh, you're just going to get slower and slower slower, uh, more poor. Uh, usually, in most countries, the result's emigration. Could you say a little bit about what's going on in Greece right now and Europe generally, the Eurozone? Uh, the Greek government uh, has difficulty paying its, its uh, debts because, essentially, the government is very corrupt, and it's uh, bought off corruption for the insiders by uh, giving away a lot of uh, very high pensions and giving away uh, money to uh, the other side of the uh, political spectrum. And so it's an economy that really doesn't pay its way. And it can't create euros, unlike the United States, because it's part of the European Union. Uh, so basically, Greece doesn't have a way of uh, financing itself, and uh, this is leading to thoughts of, uh, well, uh, it can't just print the money, unlike uh, a sovereign country, because it's like a state. Uh, the problems that Greece and Ireland and Spain have are the problems of uh, California and Illinois uh, and Nevada being states, not national governments. And the state can be in trouble because it has to use money supplied by a central authority, uh, in Europe's case, the European Union. And uh, uh, the problem is that states can't do it. So you can look at Greece sort of like you'd see California uh, in a budget deficit, uh, unable to pay and in danger of default. In another show, you talked about um, how in the Eurozone, they can't run big deficits. Countries that are supposed to join uh, Europe, the so-called New Europe countries, the post-Soviet bloc in Iceland, have their own local currencies, unlike Greece and Spain that use the euros. Uh, and they are supposed to not run deficits in order to be able to qualify for uh, membership in the European Union. But of course, now that the European uh, countries themselves are running deficits, uh, the other countries are all running deficits, and so nobody knows what will happen. The reality is that uh, European expansion is more or less stopped, and in fact, the European banks uh, have lent very heavily to emerging Europe, Latvia, the Baltics, uh, Hungary, and uh, they've lost their shirts on bad mortgages. And so the European banking system uh, is in trouble. Uh, fortunately, the banks have been able to sell most of their bad debts to the uh, pension funds and the mutual funds so that it's labor that's uh, losing there. And uh, the solution over there is the same over here. European uh, governments say uh, there's no problem we have if we don't 
just cut living standards in half. So the European policy now, led by the labor parties, is to reduce living standards and uh, essentially squeeze out enough of a surplus to uh, be able to pay the banks uh, for the bad loans they've made. So their policy is the same as uh, Obama's uh, Rubenomics policy here. Yes, and, and I've been seeing a lot written about fears of, of sovereign debt defaults. Uh, yes, they're not really all that sovereign. It's sort of like saying uh, California can't pay its bonds, or it's like New York uh, State, New York City in the 1970s, when New York City almost went bankrupt until it uh, turned over the management of the city to the financial uh, managers. Uh, and essentially that's what's happening in Europe. Uh, it means that the governments uh, really are just turned over to the bankers to run. But what happens if the states default, or in the case of Europe, the the separate countries that make up the Eurozone default? Then the uh, holders of their bonds don't get paid. Just like in this country, if uh, California goes under, then the pension funds that hold California bonds uh, don't get paid. And so they're wiped out. And if they lose money on the bonds, then the labor savings are wiped out. So in Europe, uh, the pension funds that hold these uh, government bonds essentially will be left with worthless IOUs. And the only way to repay these bonds will be to increase uh, taxes on labor, uh, reducing living standards all the more. So no matter what happens, either labor loses its savings, or if it keeps its savings in bonds, it has to pay much higher taxes. That's the choice uh, that Europe faces, and it's why Europe is going to be shrinking. And it sounds like that's the same thing that's happening here in the United States. Yes. So it looks like the United States and Europe are going the same way. That's the idea. Dr. Michael Hudson, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Bonnie. I've been speaking with Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show has been The New Junk Economics, From Democracy to Neoliberal Oligarchy. Michael Hudson is a financial economist and historian. He is president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trend, a Wall Street financial analyst and distinguished research professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. His 1972 book, Super Imperialism, the Economic Strategy of American Empire, is a critique of how the United States exploited foreign economies through the IMF and World Bank. He is also author of Trade, Development, and Foreign Debt, and soon to be published America's Protectionist Takeoff, 1815-1914, about the 19th century, both available at Amazon.com. A few of his most recent articles that we discussed today are The Bernanke Reappointment, Be Afraid, Be Very Afraid, and his speech to the Labor Party in Australia, The Counter-Enlightenment, Its Economic Program, and The Classical Alternative. Dr. Hudson has been a consultant to foreign governments, including Canada, Mexico, Russia, and Latvia. Visit his website at www.michael-hudson.com. That's michael-hudson.com. His articles are also regularly carried at globalresearch.ca, counterpunch.org, and the University of Missouri-Kansas City Economics Department blog at neweconomicperspectives.blogspot.com. That's neweconomicperspectives.blogspot.com. 
Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To make comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Or call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Trying to steal your life, you know what I'm saying?